0: Let's open our Bibles and uh, see what God has to show us this morning as we've been going through our expository series in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Here we believe that God's Word is completely true. It doesn't have any error and it's sufficient for salvation. It's sufficient for sanctification. And so we open it up multiple times during our worship service. We study it during the week. We love God's Word. It is God talking to us through His Word. And we've been looking at a challenging book, Ecclesiastes. We started out looking at Solomon's life experience. First couple of chapters were all the things that he tried, other than God, to find some meaning, some purpose, some advantage in life, so that when he died, something would be left over. And last week, I said when we started chapter 3, that we were now looking at his observations. And so last week we looked at the providence of God. And now we're going to look at objections to that providence. Objections to the providence of God. He brings up two here in this passage 3.16-22. through 22. So let me read that to you. Ecclesiastes 3.16. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun, in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is Hevel. The the Hebrew word there is Hevel. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? This is Solomon's attempt to deal with a couple of objections to the providence of God. And if you've been around Christianity long, you've probably either thought these things or heard them or maybe argued or debated with somebody who had objections to the providence of God or the sovereignty of God. People often will even use this to try to prove that god doesn't exist they will say how can there be evil in this world in this universe if there is a good god atheists one of their favorite arguments how christian how can there be a good god or god at all if such bad things happen sometimes professing believers will say how can god control everything if this bad thing this evil thing happened to me my family member Or a disaster occurred in the world. And sometimes even true believers will struggle with this. They'll see it in scripture. They understand that that's what the word says. But they find it hard to accept it. They want to throw out these objections. And not quite grasp or fully love the doctrine of the providence of God. I defined providence last week for you as the exercise of God's sovereignty. And the service of wise and good purposes. God is sovereign, meaning he has authority to do as he pleases. He is the creator, the judge, the ruler of all things. And his providence is exercising that sovereignty and His wise and good purposes. If we wanted to expand that, we could go along with Wayne Grudem's definition. That God is continually involved with all created things. He didn't wind up the clock and let it go. He didn't create and step back. He is continually involved with all created things, Grudem says, in such a way that he does these three main things. He keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. The fact that you breathe today, that your heart beats today, that you can be in this room today is because of God and his providential care. Even here in the the word providence, provide. God provides for you. Grudem goes on, he says, The second thing about God's providence is that he cooperates... He cooperates. He doesn't force. He cooperates. He doesn't step back and let us do everything and our own free will take over His sovereignty. He cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Everything we do is part of God's plan. Nothing we do is outside of God's plan. And then the third part of the definition here, and this is probably the thing that we really need to remember and keep in mind. Providence means that God directs them, all things that happen, including us, to fulfill His purposes. God is directing all things to fulfill His purpose. And God has many purposes laid out in Scripture, but ultimately there's one main purpose, and that's to glorify Himself. So we need to keep that definition in mind as we look at some of these objections. If God controls all things then why does this happen? Why does that happen? How could a good God let such things happen to us, to this world, to his own people? Well, ultimately, we have to say it's for his purposes. Now, how far we can drill down and get to the mechanics of it will be a challenge because we're finite. God is infinite. God is all-knowing. And God works in his own way We can only go as far as Scripture will take us. We can only go that far. Man has tried other ways. Man has come up with philosophical ideas to try to answer these questions. But as Christians, we can only go as far as Scripture takes us. And Solomon touches on some objections today to God's providence. Now, he doesn't deal with the main objection that you hear today. What's the main objection today to God's sovereignty, God's providence? Human free will absolute free will that we've been told that we have. Solomon doesn't deal with that one because nobody really struggled with that issue in those days. Everyone served someone else. Slaves served their masters. Free bondsmen who had been freed from slavery understood what it meant to serve their masters, and they often went back and worked for their masters for pay. Masters and lords served their king, and often kings served the emperor, and the emperor was supposed to serve the people and was often killed if he didn't do so. Everyone understood you were always under a master. So to transition from serving the emperor to serving the Lord, Jesus Christ, it's not an issue. If we're going to serve somebody, we might as well serve the Lord if we're Christians, right? Praise the Lord. I don't have to serve him the same way that I used to. Now I can serve Jesus Christ, not the emperor, not the king. So the issue of free will doesn't come up. That's a discussion for another day. It is addressed throughout Scripture. It is addressed especially in the book of Romans. But he comes up with two other objections that were common in his day and still are common in our day. And the first one that we'll look at here, if God is in control of everything that happens, then the first point is, why is there injustice in the world? 16 and 17 deals with that. Why is there injustice? Why God are people suffering, especially in the hands of those who are supposed to bring about justice in the world, the government. Why? I mean, it's one thing for evil to be in the world. It's one thing for murders and such to happen. But for people to go to the courts, to go to a leader, to go to the government, so they can get something in their favor, a ruling in their favor, they can get righteousness And they don't find it there, but they find evil? How can a God exist if that's the case? Well, what he's going to say, I'll give you the the answer before we dig into it, is that God is still sovereign over all that happens, including injustice and government. And he will bring everyone to account for their action. Just because we don't see God bringing about his justice right now doesn't mean that he's not in control. Just because we don't have it in our own timing, God doesn't operate according to our plan, doesn't mean that he's not there controlling all things. And Solomon has clearly laid out in the first part of this chapter here that God is sovereign over everything. Just look at verse 1. Probably one of the most famous passages from Ecclesiastes. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. And he starts to lay out these different parts of life. To give birth, to die, to plant, to uproot, to go to war, time for peace. Then he goes on in, in 9 through 15, applying that to our life. Even the work that we do is appointed by God. There's nothing good in us, but there's something good in God. And he gives us good things. He gives us things to enjoy, even as we're toiling under the curse. Even as we're working hard and wondering, what's the point, God? He gives us good gifts that we should be thankful for. And now Solomon says, furthermore. So in addition to the fact that God is sovereign over all things, here's what he's observed. And he says, I have seen under the sun. Under the sun. The the first 15 verses of this chapter was Solomon speaking about God's providence From God's perspective. He even changed it a bit and said, under heaven. I I know these things to be true because God has revealed them that he's in control of all things. But now, from my perspective, Solomon says, from man's perspective, I've seen something under the sun. That unique phrase, under the sun, is used 29 times in Ecclesiastes, the only book of the Bible where you see that phrase. It means life on earth. Life in this world. Everyday life in the here below. Contrasted with the heavenly things. Contrasted with... Divine revelation. He says, my observation as a man, especially a man who was running from God, as I've seen these things, and and they're questions in my mind, they're questions that all men have, all mankind has. When he says under the sun, he's focusing on what we can observe from our perspective. Remember, he's not telling you to go do everything he did under the sun, or think everything he thought under the sun. You don't want to go in those places. Those are places of sin. Those are paths of sin that Solomon ran into. We're supposed to learn from his perspective. So he is observing some things, starting here in chapter 3. He'll go all the way through chapter 5, observing these things. The world is cursed. The world is plagued by sin and misery. And he's bringing up some real questions that people have. Christianity is not about ignoring the question. Christianity is not about ignoring the hard things in life. There are a few people out there who say evil doesn't exist. They must be living in a dream state. That's not the Christian way of things. Read the Bible. From Genesis 3 until almost the end of Revelation, before Christ comes back, from Genesis 3 until uh, Revelation 19, there is sin, there is evil, there is misery. And so Solomon's just being real. Here's what I've observed. What does he observe? Look at the text. That in the place of justice, there's wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. Government, courts, judges, tribunals, whatever you want to call it, God has instituted them for a reason. Why do they have judges in the Old Testament? Why do we have judges today? To relieve To give relief to the people, his creation, because of the unrighteousness which has been acted on them. When somebody does something wrong, illegal, hurtful, the court is supposed to deal righteously with that situation. We're not necessarily talking about every time you get your feelings hurt and want to take somebody to court like people do in our society. We're talking about clear-cut standard of right and wrong. Everyone's born... With a true idea of morality. It takes a searing of the conscience. A twisting of the mind. To move away. From right and wrong. That we're all born with. And Solomon says. I, I've seen this. I've seen it happen. Everything in this area appears to be switched. He says. People go to court. And they, they want a righteous dealing. Think of a, a widow. Who is getting her land taken away. By the neighbor. That has twisted the law to his advantage. And the judge rules in favor of the neighbor, leaving the widow to die. Jesus actually uses that as a parable, doesn't he, in the New Testament? And says that this widow just keeps on bugging this judge. And even though he's an unbelieving judge, he still rules in her favor. Because she bugs him. Jesus is teaching on prayer. But Jesus acknowledges there are unrighteous judges, unrighteous courts, unrighteous governments. The word here for justice, or maybe your translation says judgment. It means the place where you go to get a dispute settled according to law. And of course, righteousness. That means to be in accordance with what is right. And who sets the standard of right? Who sets the standard of what is right? God does. So you expect righteousness. You expect things to be in line with what God said is right. Meaning even the unbeliever knows, as I said, in their heart, right from wrong. They don't have to know the Bible. They don't have to memorize the Bible. Every society agrees murder is wrong. Stealing, theft, it's wrong. Especially from your own community. But we see unrighteousness today. Even today, we we see it often with, with the pedophile who gets out of the court system somehow in a loophole and gets out to hurt more people. The murderer who's able to hire the best attorneys in the country, and get off the hook. We see unrighteous judges doing evil, wicked things behind closed doors. We don't see it until sometimes years later when it comes out in the news. Just to give you a few examples where Christians were involved. In China last year, Pastor Wang Yi was sentenced to nine years in prison. Nine years in prison in China. Why? Well, the government said it was for inciting subversion of state power, and illegal business activities. But really, all he was doing was preaching. He was holding church. He was preaching the gospel, but the state didn't approve of that preaching. The state didn't approve of that church. You see, in places like China, you have to be approved by the state before you can have a church, before you can preach. They want you to hold their doctrine because they're Marxists there in China. You might be familiar recently with James Coates in Canada. He spent five weeks in prison. And a holding facility. Why? For leading and holding church services on Sunday. And the government put him there. Because they said he was conducting services that were unlawful. According to COVID lockdowns. They put a pastor in jail for five weeks. And they actually let a pedophile out during the same time. And warned the community that this guy will act again. We're letting him out to make room in jail. But be aware he might And probably will act again. Maybe a little closer to home for some of us in the U.S. Supreme Court a few years ago, 2015, ruled in the Obergefell decision that two people of the same sex could be officially married. Overturning laws that have been in place in Western society for 1,700 years since the Roman Empire converted to Christianity. And overturning God's law that had been in place since the creation of mankind. Is that righteousness or unrighteousness? Wickedness. It's wickedness. You might be familiar with another court case. Jack Phillips, a Christian cake baker, persecuted for refusing to bake a cake to celebrate a same-sex wedding. He went all the way to the Supreme Court, won his case. He did not have to make a cake celebrating a same-sex wedding. But now the state has come after him again because they say he refused to bake a cake for a gender transition That was occurring for somebody. Now let's go all the way back to the Supreme Court. And we could go on and on down the list. This type of injustice is happening in many fields where Christians work today. There are some fields of industry and work that it's going to be very difficult for Christians to go into. Based on the laws, based on what is happening in our world. It's not just in America. America. It's not just because a new man got elected to president. These things have been happening for decades in our country and in our world. Now, if we go back to the text here and think about this, Solomon is saying there's injustice. And there's wickedness in the place of righteousness. But you might wonder, well, Solomon's the king, isn't he? Isn't he the king? And some people even say this is proof Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes because if he was the king, he could make a change, couldn't he? Doesn't he hear the best cases, the highest cases in the land? So some Bible scholars say Solomon didn't write this. He's the ultimate judge of Israel. How can he tell his people to stop doing injustice when he is the king? Well, kings appointed judges just like today. Rulers appoint judges in their land. He appointed judges and he knows that there's going to be unjust decisions in their courts. Solomon even knows that he's tempted sometimes to make unjust decisions because he'd been running from God. He'd been worshiping the idols that his wives brought into the marriage. In 2 Chronicles, we see another king later after Solomon, King Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles 19.6 says that Jehoshaphat appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. He said to the judges, consider what you're doing. For you do not judge for man but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. You see, he's appointing judges throughout his kingdom and he's telling them what? Exactly what Solomon says should not occur. There should not be wickedness in the courts. And Jehoshaphat is saying, make sure that you do the right thing because you're working for the Lord, not for man. Now Solomon is writing generally. Generally. He's just saying, this is the way things happen. Whether it's in a court of Israel or a court of India or the future court of Rome or Greece or America, This is just the way things are, the way things are in the world. And he knows that objection is out there to God's providence because he's even thought the same thing. But look how he resolves it in verse 17. I said to myself, I said to my heart, to my innermost being, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. To even get a piece of the big picture. We don't look for answers in man. If you just go out and observe and observe and observe mankind, what are you going to see? Sin, wickedness. Yeah, you'll see some good things along the way. Some blessings, some common grace blessings, some Christians doing good things. But you can't evaluate properly the way things are supposed to be just by looking at the world. You need revelation from God. You need to recall what God has said in his word. And that's what Solomon is doing here. I believe he's saying to himself, I know this to be true. I don't observe it, but I know it's true. I know that judgment is coming. I know that God is the ultimate judge. You see, he would have recalled scripture. Even writings that his dad, David, had written. Psalms about this subject. And look what he says. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. God's not going to forget the unrighteous. He's not going to forget the sin. God doesn't forget anything. There will be a time. There will be a place for it. He says there's a time for every matter. That's the exact same phrase that he uses back in verse 1 of the chapter. Now, I wish they translated the words the same so we could see it. NASB just says there's a time for every event. But it's the exact same in Hebrew. There's a time for every matter. Everything has an appointed time, including God's judgment. People don't get out of it. They might think they're doing great today. They might think they're getting away with it. But there is a time. There's a time coming where God will judge. And even the phrase there tells us of a specific place of judgment before the throne of God. There's going to be a judgment. And you need to know that. We all need to realize that. And he's saying, This is what I recall, this is what I remember. It's the same in the New Testament. Hebrews 9, 27, for example. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. One life, then judgment. One life, then judgment. Not a second chance, not reincarnation. One life, then judgment. Everyone. Everyone who's not put their faith in Christ. Everyone who's not put their full trust in the Son of God to save them will have this great Judgment upon them. And Solomon knows that. He doesn't have to wait until the New Testament is written. It is throughout the Old Testament that there is going to be a final judgment, and the wicked will be punished eternally. Psalm 1 5 through 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Daniel 12. Daniel's writing about the end times at the end of his book there. And he's writing about what will happen in the future, particularly the nation of Israel. And at the very end, it's revealed to him that many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. He's talking about the resurrection. These to everlasting life. The ones who follow God, the ones who trust in God, the ones who follow the Messiah, to everlasting life. But the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight, those who have the knowledge of God, those who have God working through them, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There is a difference. The righteous, who are righteous because God gave them his righteousness, the righteous will live forever and ever eternally with him. The unrighteous will be punished forever. That's a fact in Scripture. It's over and over and over. Before Solomon lived, during his life, and after his life. It wasn't something people had to wait on until Jesus came to realize there's going to be eternal punishment for the sinner, for the wicked. The unrighteous will be eternally punished. The Puritan uh, Thomas Watson said, Eternity, eternity to the godly, is a day that is no sunset. The sun will never set. It's a beautiful day forever and ever. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. It's punishment. It's darkness. It's pain forever. But we don't see it now. That's the point. That's the objection. Where's God's justice? Well, that's faith. Faith is waiting on God to bring about his judgment. Faith is trusting that God will handle all things. This is really not an objection. It's really an issue of us wanting to control God's timeline. We want to control God's timeline. We want to see justice now. And part of that's righteous. Part of that's good. We want to see the good, right? We want to see the right thing done. But when we reject God's providence because of that, we're basically saying, God, you didn't work on my timeline. You didn't do what I wanted This is the issue with social justice. Social justice today looks out upon the world, sees discrepancies, and wants them fixed now. Sometimes it's not even a right judgment of what's happening in the world. But let's assume for a second that they do see something that is wrong. Is mankind even able to fix that? Or is that something that is God's prerogative, that God will do in His time? Are we as humans trying to bring about God's justice in the world when we're not capable of doing that. There's a great book out there by Thomas Sowell, a little book called Cosmic Justice. And he says social justice is is the attempt to bring about God's cosmic justice when God, who knows all things and sees all things, can accurately bring about justice, but we can't. We can't see all things. We don't know all things. God's still in control. We've got to Acknowledge that. He he knows what he's doing. He, He knows what he's doing with everything and everyone. His providential care over every molecule. Every second of time as well. Not just the things that are there, but the timeline of events. God's over it all. He's controlling it all. Let's not grow weary. Let's not lose faith. Let's not object to that. Psalm 73 is great. It's, it's a great psalm. Go and read it later. Psalm 73, just turn there and we'll look at a couple of verses. Look what happened here. He, he's struggling. The psalmist is struggling with this idea that the wicked are not being punished. And it is hard. If it's your family, if it's you, if it's your child that has had evil done against him or her, this is difficult. And he says in in verse 2 here of Psalm 73, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. He came close to sinning. Why? My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They were being prosperous. God wasn't doing anything to punish them in this life. And if you read on, he talks and describes how he struggles with that issue. He struggles with it. And he says in 27, verse 27, near the end, for behold, those who are far from you will perish. He says, I don't understand what's going on now, and I'm really struggling with it, but I need to remember, and he does eventually remember, that those who are not with God, those who are not trusting in God will perish. You have destroyed all those who care, all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, he says, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. God, you will take care of it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to focus on loving you and following you and praising you and telling other people about you because you're my refuge. You're my strength. I can't fix the world. I'm not God. I'm going to do what you've told me to do. That's the way we have to see this. God is in control of all things. And even, even injustice is part of his plan. In fact, one of the purposes of injustice is so that man cannot figure out all the things that God knows. Look back at verse 11, Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet, he's done it in such a way so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. God has made things in such a way that ultimately glorify him But another purpose is that we can't figure it all out. We're not God. We can't understand it all. If we did, we would be God. Because only God understands it all. Well, we could go on and on about injustice. But let's move on to the second point here that Solomon brings up. In verses 18 through 22, here's the objection. If God is in control of everything that happens, then why does man die like the animals? I mean, death is a bad thing. Death is due to sin. Death is due to the curse. How could a good God let people die? And whichever way they die, whether it be because of someone's sinful act of murder, uh, a disaster, car accident, a storm, or just cancer, heart disease, or just dying of old age. And I'll give you the answer already. Even though death comes to all mankind, just like the animals. God in his providence has a purpose in this as well. He has a purpose in death. And before you've maybe looked at this passage, you wouldn't have known this purpose. It might be unique to all of scripture, except in in a mention in Psalm 48, which we'll look at. So verse 18, I said to myself, again, to my heart, to to my inner person, to my being, concerning the sons of men. Or the children of Adam, maybe your translation says. Because men here is literally Adam. So uh, here's, here's something that I said to myself about mankind. God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Here he just states the answer right up front. So many times we've seen Solomon bring up an issue. And you go through all these verses and finally you get a little answer at the end. And sometimes with his experience, you never got an answer. That's going to come later in the book. Here he just states it right off the bat. God is doing it to test, to prove something to mankind. That's what the word here means in Hebrew. It means to prove out something, to sift, to sort out. One of the reasons God has brought this curse of death upon mankind is because he wants to make clear. He wants us to be very clear. Our lives are no better than beasts. Our physical, temporary life on this earth. Now that might sound shocking to some Christians. But let's follow his argument here. This is not a verse that he stops here. and doesn't say anything else. But what is he saying in this text? That God has purposed this as a test. For them to see something. To learn. To observe. That they are but beasts. Now today, this is not so shocking. You've heard of evolution and how we're supposed to be descended from apes. We're just another part of the animal kingdom. There's really no difference. That's what they teach in secular schools. But in Solomon's day, this would have been even more shocking. Very shocking. Because they knew the Bible. They knew that there was a difference between man and the animals. We've kind of gotten used to evolutionary theory today. But even as Christians, we look at this and say, how can that be? And he even brings it out with the original Hebrew. It's, It's not shown here in the English. He says, In order for them to see that they are but beasts, they themselves, he just keeps repeating it, they themselves are actually animals. Now Psalm 48, 12 says something similar. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. How are we like animals? Well, he explains it. He knows it's going to be a shock to us. So in verse 19, Uh, For the fate of the sons of men, again, sons of Adam, children of Adam, descendants of Adam, and the fate of beasts is the same. I don't think fate here is Greek mythology, the fates. A better translation is just happens. So here's the ESV. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. That's how we're like beasts. That's how we're like animals. What happens? What happens to us all? As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. There it is. We're all living beings. Now your translation should say breath here. Some say spirit. That's misleading. But people look here and they say, animals have an eternal spirit. Animals are going to be resurrected. Our pets will be with us. Now, no one ever talks about their, the snake that they're afraid of might be resurrected and in their lap in heaven, right? It's always our pets. That's not what this says. The The word here, ruach, can mean spirit, it can mean wind, and it can mean breath. It all depends on the context. And here he's talking about life and death. It's clear that he's talking about death because he goes on to mention it more in the next few verses. So the context is more about the, the life, the breath, the ability... To take in air and breathe and live. And in fact, that's what happened, right? In Genesis 3. God said your life would be taken from you. You would die because you have sinned. All who sin will die. And you get down to Genesis 5 and what does it say? This person lived so many years and he died. And this person lived so many years and he died. It's a genealogy of death, isn't it? I mean, yes, they lived a thousand years. We would rejoice at that. But what's the end of every one? He died. He died. He died. Man was supposed to live forever. And physically, his body is dying because of sin, because of the curse. We're just like animals in that sense. And there's no advantage, he says, for man over beast. So there's the objection. God, you're in control of all things, but you let us die just like the animals who are lower than us in creation. We're just like animals. God, why are you doing this? What's the point if we're like rodents or snakes or cattle or even the pet dog? We all just die like them. And often animals live short lives. So we can see that. If you've had a dog, he dies 10, 12, 14 years, and you get another dog you got to go through that again. Whatever pet that you enjoy. right? The little hamsters probably live much less time than that. And that's why Solomon says, For all is Hevel. Different translations will translate Hevel differently. Vanity, meaningless, futility. Let's just go with the Hebrew Hevel because it means life is a vapor. Life is fleeting. The animal's life is fleeting. It's here one day. He's gone the next. Our life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's fleeting. It's temporary under the sun on the earth. Animals are temporary. Humans are temporary. At least from the vantage point that we can see on the earth. He's not talking about God's perspective. Man's perspective here. Many Christians get confused here. I've mentioned before about the debate on how to translate Hevel. started really with the first sermon in Ecclesiastes. If your translation says vanity or or even meaningless, it can be confusing. Is Solomon saying that human life is really meaningless? That our life has no value? That it's vain? Yeah, we could say total depravity makes mankind in general live in a vain way, but is, is that really what God is saying here? Is Solomon trying to answer the question of God's providence and objections to it by saying, It's all pointless. You're going to die like the animals. No, because if we understand that Havel is the temporary mist, a vapor. He's talking about length. He's talking about impact, time. You're going to die. And you need to wake up to that. Because people don't realize it. They don't want to think about it. Today, we've set it aside that death is coming. And so no one prepares for it. No one thinks about it. We've gotten really good in our society at ignoring death and what might come after death. And so we don't want to think about it at all. We put it aside. All is Havel. All is temporary. And and Havel here is different than Ruach, which is the breath of life that we just looked at. Havel is more of this mist, this vapor. When you breathe on a cold day, it's there. You can see it, and then it's gone. In fact, one commentator, Fredericks here, He says, if any passage attests to Havel, meaning temporary, in Ecclesiastes, this one does. Since the whole point of the comparison is to show that both beasts and people are temporary. Verse 20, they all go to the same place. And he even looks back to Genesis. They all came from dust and all return to dust. Everyone knows that animals die. They're buried. They get put in the ground. They turn to dirt. But humans... What about them? Same thing. Let's go back to Genesis. So much of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Why do they say that at funerals sometimes, right? Dust to dust. Ashes to ashes. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust. He got this dust from the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. He breathed into man the breath of life, but he formed up man from the dust. Now I go over to chapter 3, verse 19 of Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God. God said, if you do it, you'll surely die. They did it. They don't die immediately, but their body begins to die as soon as they sin. And here's what he says in verse 19. He's laying out the effects of their sin. The curse, we call it. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground. You're going to work and it's going to be a struggle. It's not going to be easy. You're not going to walk along the Garden of Eden and just pick fruit anymore and eat it. You're going to have to work at it. Until you return to the ground. The ground. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. We're not God. We're not even angels. We have a body that will return to the ground. It will die. Death is coming. Life is short. Wake up, in other words. Wake up. What are you doing with your life right now? Where are you going after you die? Over and over, we're going to see this in Ecclesiastes. Wake up. Look at what sin has done to the world. Realize you need a Savior. Put your trust in Him. Now, He's not explicit. And Ecclesiastes with those exact phrases. That's more New Testament language. But that's the point. Wake up. Now Solomon's not confused. You might read Ecclesiastes in these verses here in chapter 3 and say, you know what, he thinks we're the same as animals. He thinks like Peter Singer does, the atheist at Princeton, who argues that there's not one species that is higher or better than another. I mean, Solomon, have you gone off and joined PETA here? We can't eat meat. That's unethical. An animal's life is equal to ours. Now, he knows the Bible. Go back to Genesis 1. We're still in Genesis, if you're still there. Chapter 1. He knows God's creation, what's been said. He's read the first five books of the Bible. Or he would have had a copy of it, or he was supposed to as a king, and I think he did. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. See, that's the key distinctive for mankind. God created man. I'm talking about men and women in his own image. He does not say that about the animals. He created them, male and female. He created them. And they're to rule over the rest of creation. So animals are lower on the scale here because they're not created in God's image and God has placed mankind over the animal world. Now go to chapter 2, verse 19. He says it again, 2.19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast. So they also come from the ground. They also come from dust. That's how we're like them every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Quite a privilege. That means that man has authority to name something. Man gives the name to the animals. He has authority over them. Let's also go to Psalm 8. You might think, well, all of that changes. All of that changes after the fall. That was just in the Garden of Eden that man was supposed to rule over the animals. Not anymore. We'll go to Psalm 8. David, that's Solomon's father. Solomon would have known this. He's not getting confused when he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. Psalm 8, verse 6. Talking about mankind, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field. That's animals the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Solomon's not confused. He's he's bringing up the objection. He's thought of it in his wandering days and he knows that's out there. How can a good God do that? How? Well, it's to test mankind so that we will learn. We will learn that we're going to die just like the animals that we see dying all the time just like all those deer that are roadkill, all the armadillos, the possums. You might have seen some on your way to church this morning. We're going to die. We're not completely the same as animals, but in that sense, we are like them. And so in verse 21, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. Again, people look to this and they say, see, no one can know if animals go to heaven. That's not what it says. It's comparison. The breath of man ascends upward. Everyone thought that. Everyone thought that the spirit went somewhere. The life of a person continued on. But the life of the beast goes downward into the earth. So man gets buried in the earth. The animals get buried in the earth. They both go into the earth. But something different happens to men and women. Something different happens to people. And that's all Solomon is pointing out. He's saying, yeah, we know these things to be true, but you can't see that. Have you ever seen someone's spirit go to heaven? Have you ever seen what happens after this life? Have you ever really observed that? I know there's people making millions of dollars telling you what they experience after death, but no one's seen it. Paul got a glimpse of heaven when he was taken there and he said he couldn't even reveal what he saw. But no one has come back from the dead and told us what heaven is about. And so Solomon is saying, under the sun, what's the perspective that we see? Animals die, they go to the ground. Man dies, he goes to the ground. We know that his spirit goes to God, but you can't see it. No one living has ever seen people go to heaven. It's in the unseen realm. It's in the spiritual realm. Solomon knows what happens after death. People look at this and they say, he doesn't even know. He doesn't know about heaven. He's so backwards. Look at chapter 12, verse 7. So chapter 12, verse 7. This is very interesting. If Solomon doesn't know what happens, then what is he saying in 12, 7? Then the dust will return to the earth. He's talking about death here. The dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Your body goes into the ground and the spirit goes to God. He knows about life after death. He's making a rhetorical point. He's asking a rhetorical question. Who has seen what happens after we die? He knows. He, he knew like Job, the oldest book in the Bible. If man dies, Job said in Job fourteen fourteen. if man dies, he, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes, till my resurrection comes. Job knew that. Job 19, famous verse, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. He knows God is his Redeemer and that he will always live and that at the last he will take his stand on the earth. There's going to be a Messiah upon the earth that is God. Even after my skin is destroyed, even after he dies and his skin rots away, yet from my flesh, meaning resurrection, I shall see God. And Psalm 49, let's look at Psalm 49. Probably written before or during Solomon's life. Psalm 49, 10. He's not confused. We ought not to be confused. The Bible's clear on where we go. If you trust in Christ, you go to heaven to be with God eternally. If you don't, you go to hell. But it's still eternal. Punishment is still eternal. Psalm 49, 10. For he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. That sounds like what Solomon's been saying back in chapter 2. He goes on. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever. We think that our, our things are going to go on forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. You know, I'll just leave my property, my house, my land, my ranch, my business to my. Uh, kids to the next generation. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and those after them who approve their words. Selah. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, just like animals. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall roll over them in the morning and their form shall be for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. But God Will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will receive me. Everyone dies, and there's no hope to get out of that unless you trust in God, you trust in the Lord. He will redeem my soul. And now skip to the end, verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Same idea. This isn't Solomon. This is the sons of Korah. Same idea. Solomon understood what would happen after death. He knew that beasts do not have an eternal spirit created in the image of God. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, says the soul of a beast is at death like a candle blown out. There's a life there. Blows out. It's gone. But, he says, whereas the soul of man is then like a candle taken out of a dark lantern which leaves the lantern useless indeed, that's our body, but doth itself shine brighter. So when man dies and goes to be with God, if he's a believer, then he's even brighter. He shines brighter, more glorious, completely righteous. Here's how he concludes this whole thing. You've got all these objections to God's providence, he says. I had them too. I want you to know them. But here's where you need to put your focus. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. That's his inheritance. The lot means a portion, a possession, a share. While we live, we're to enjoy and give thanks to God for what he's given us. We're not to play God and think that we can fix these problems that we see in the world. We're not to try to solve these issues of injustice and what happens at death. Can you actually stop a person's death? Maybe if they're about to get into an accident, but ultimately you cannot prevent somebody from dying. They will die eventually. The Lord's the only one who can do that if he decides to come back before you die. That's it. The Lord took people like Enoch and Elijah before they physically died. He took them into heaven. But we can't change anything. Solomon says... Focus on being content and happy with what God has given you. Stop trying to play God. Stop trying to play God. Stop thinking you can control all things. As he says at the end here, another rhetorical question, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? You see how he wraps it up there? He doesn't give an answer. He just asks a question. Enjoy what you have now. You don't know What you do now and how it's going to impact others after you're gone. What you do now has an eternal impact. That's how we might say it in New Testament language. What is he saying with this question? Who knows what comes after a person dies, after you're gone to be with God? Who knows what happens on this earth? Who knows? Who knows how the way you lived and what you believe will impact your family after you're gone? Your church. Your workplace? Who knows? Well, the obvious answer is God knows. God knows. God will evaluate a person's whole life in the future day of judgment. No one truly can understand that what we do now will have a great impact after we're gone. Except God. He knows those things. He knows all things. In other words, Solomon is concluding by saying God is in control of everything even what happens after we're dead. Now, from the beginning of the book, he's been saying, what advantage does man have after he dies? What's the point of all this work? What's the point? We're just like animals. That's an objection, right? There's injustice. That's an objection. All this work and toil and work and toil. What's the point? What's the advantage? Well, God knows. If you're his, God will use it for good. God knows how it can be used For his glory. All we can do is respond with faith. Thank you, Lord, for what you've given me right now. Help me, Lord, to do what glorifies you. Help me in this job, God, to glorify you, to praise your name. Help me, Lord, to be grateful, to be content. You see, these objections often come from a heart of discontentment. I'm not happy with you, God. You didn't do what I wanted in this situation. And it might even be the right thing, according to Scripture. But God has his own timeline. Be happy with what you've been given. Rejoice when you can rejoice. And weep when it's time to weep. But God will set all things right, and he knows what is to come after you. These really are not even objections to his providence. They're what we say, but they're not valid objections. Solomon just dealt with them very easily. Very easily. God has a plan. He has a plan in everything. He has a plan in creation, in the fall, in redemption, and in restoration. All throughout history, God has a plan. You can't guess at His plan that's to come. Just be thankful. Just be grateful. Just fear God and obey His commandments. Just trust in Him. If you're a believer, live like you truly trust God. Stop getting up every day upset. Unhappy? Wondering what? My God hasn't given you your due. It says right here, He's giving you your, por- your portion, your lot, your inheritance. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. If you're an unbeliever, you ought to be really afraid as you hear this passage. Death is coming. You're going into the ground and then what? That's all. You, you can't even see what happens after death unless you read this book because that's where it tells you what happens after death. And it's quite scary for the unbeliever. For the believer, for the person who put their whole life in Christ's hands and says, I can't do it, save me. Then they get to be with the Lord forever. They get a new body. They get to enjoy the new heavens and new earth. All this injustice will be gone. All this death will be gone. You see, these things are here in this world, injustice and death, to drive us to God. So we'll trust in Him and be with Him forever. Well, there won't be any injustice. There won't be any death. Can Christians say amen to that? Yeah, amen. Lord, we do thank you that you have given us the good things in life. As believers, we know that you have blessed us. We've been talking about that for some weeks, how we ought to be content, we ought to enjoy all that you've done for us, all that you've given us. And help us to be that way, Lord. Help us to quit doubting you, quit trying to play God. We submit to you, we serve you. We have no objections to your providence. It's taught in scripture. It must be true. So help us to live a life of faith that is in line with that. In the name of Jesus, amen.